we uh, thank you that we can come now to study your word, and we do pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be, uh, first of all, uh, able to hear and to understand uh, your word for us, and Father, that you would convict us of what we need to be convicted of, uh, Father, that you would impress on our hearts uh, what you would have us know about you. And uh, Father, we want to be open to you and not closed, not just going through the motions, uh, but truly worshipers in spirit and truth. Uh, and Father, I just pray now that you'd be with us in the reading of your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Dave Snoke, and um, uh, some of you were here last week. We are doing a new series in the book of Acts, uh, and um, I believe it was Nauman last week uh, who talked about chapter 1. And uh, so I'm starting in on chapter two. It's too long to really do adequately in one week. So next week we'll finish it out. Uh, but uh, I'll be starting in. And I have to say, uh, it's kind of fun in a way. This is a really famous uh, chapter of scripture. Not, not that any scripture is more important than other scriptures, but uh, some of you, uh, this is going to date me, but uh, may remember a band called the Second Chapter of Acts. Uh, Anybody? Like, I see like two hands. Okay, three hands. All right. We know how old you are. So I'm not kidding you that for you younger people, there was a time when second chapter of Acts was like all the rage. Like they were the Christian band, right? Um, so uh, now that, that uh, name was picked for a deliberate reason because it meant something to them. And we'll talk about that as we go through the sermon. Uh, the other thing that uh, comes to me in looking at this passage is uh, when we lived in Germany, and um, there was the holiday of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is in the standard Christian calendar uh, of European churches. Uh, so it's in our calendar too. And actually in our church, we note the day of Pentecost. And we, if you've been around long enough, you know that we have people pray in foreign languages on the day of Pentecost in our church, you know, real foreign languages. Um, and... Um, but it was funny to me, when I was living in Germany, we would get uh, Pentecost greeting cards uh, from people. So I don't know, did you ever get a Pentecost greeting card? Uh, okay, well maybe it's dated even in Germany then. This was in uh, the 90s when we lived there. But we would get, uh, just like Christmas cards, we would get Easter cards and Pentecost cards. Uh, and I actually thought that was really cool because the passage we're looking at is what I would call sort of one of the big three in terms of the, uh, the sort of notable events of the gospel that get marked in the Christian calendar. So you think of uh, Christmas is celebrating the incarnation, uh, the coming of God in the flesh. And then Easter, of course, the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, but Pentecost uh, is the, uh, the, as we'll see, is the incoming, the inflowing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and it really is a big deal. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, but this is a, a really big deal. And so it's kind of appropriate that it's marked traditionally by a holiday. So I'm all for like bringing back Pentecost and Pentecost cards uh, and sending Pentecost presents to each other. Uh, maybe a Pentecost tree with some things, Pentecost gifts hanging on the tree or something like that. Um, but it's a big deal. Uh, so as I said, I'm gonna read sort of the events and then most of the sermon that is preached in the second half of the chapter, uh, that'll be covered next week uh, by someone else. So if you turn to page seven of your bulletin, uh, this is printed uh, in your bulletin, and you can read along. And then our uh, standard response is, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and the response is, thanks be to God. 
So hear the word of God from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so as I said, this is a big deal. This is um, an amazing event. Uh, It is something that Jesus predicted. Uh, If you go back to the Gospel of John... Uh, I'll just read a a few sections of John. Uh, In chapter 14, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then in John uh, chapter 16, uh, jumping down there, he says, it is to your advantage I go away For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Uh, But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, And so these are this. This is an event prophesied by Jesus, and he essentially says there's an ordering that I'm going to go away, wait for me, uh, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then uh, this event is going to happen when the Holy Spirit uh, comes. Uh, So. So much that could be said about this, about what is going on, what is going on with the filling of the Spirit and so on. Uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background before I go into any kind of application. Uh, so first of all, this is on the day of Pentecost. The word pent in there uh, means 50. And so this is on a Jewish holiday. That's one reason why there were so many people there. Uh, 50 days after Passover, which for us would be 50 days uh, after Easter. Uh, and... The day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, was sometimes called the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, so they were supposed to count off seven weeks, uh, uh, seven sevens, and then they were supposed to bring, at this point, if you remember, Passover is kind of in the spring, so 
50 days later, puts you sort of in the middle of the summer. Uh, and then you're supposed to bring the first fruits, a representative sample of your harvest, the first crops that have come in, uh, and present them at the temple. Uh, and so there's this uh, holiday in the Law of Moses, which is commanded to them uh, for that. Uh, now, so why is it significant that, that this event happens on that day? Well, think about, in a sense, this is the bursting into the world uh, of the Holy Spirit and the church expanding throughout the world. Uh, so that it's very significant that they're speaking all these different languages because one of the things that Jesus has been talking about has been uh, the expansion of the kingdom throughout the whole world. And he's talked about the gospel going to all the nations. And when he left, one of the final things he said was, go into all the nations uh, and, and uh, teaching them all that I have said to you. And yet there was sort of a, a waiting uh, period uh, for that event to start. So in a lot of ways, you could say this harvest that's happening here, all these uh, Jewish people from all different nations, is like the first bursting in of this new era, uh, and you could say this new harvest. There's going to be a harvest of people who are coming into the church. So um, one way to think about that is to say it's not the case that the Holy Spirit wasn't in the world before this. Right? The Holy Spirit was in the world, uh, in the uh, believers uh, throughout uh, all of the past time. And just to point at that, uh, Psalm 51, which we read for a prayer confession, is the psalmist saying, God, you've given me your Holy Spirit. So it's not as though the Holy Spirit had never been around. But we can say it's sort of the contrast between a seed form and the bursting out into a harvest. So if Israel is the seed, then now the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles all around the world. And that's one reason why many of us of different ethnicities are in this room right now, because the gospel burst out of Israel. And so the Holy Spirit was there in Israel, and yet there is a pouring out. There is an expansion. There is a harvest which is happening, and the gospel is now going to go throughout the whole world instead of be localized just uh, in Israel in one place. And so this is a uh, feast of first fruits. It's the beginning of the harvest. It's the beginning of the nations uh, coming in. And interestingly, this is all with Jews from different nations. But then in Acts chapter 10, we have a reprise where almost the exact same thing happens, but in this case now with Gentiles uh, from all different nations. And so I'm not going to read the story, but if you were to turn to chapter 10, you would see that Almost the exact same sequence of events happens where the Holy Spirit falls on them, it says, uh, and then they all start speaking in different languages and extolling God, and a very similar event happens. And now you see the gospel spreading even further, uh, going out to the nations. Uh, and so uh, that sort of just puts the context for all of this. Um, the other thing I have to say as sort of a background, I'm actually not going to dwell on this to a, a great degree. Uh, it's really clear from this passage that we're talking about foreign languages, right? That these are actual languages that people spoke. Uh, and um, I put in the quote in the front of the bulletin, a quote from Calvin. Um, the whole point of the miracle is to expand and increase communication. So you could say the prior state was that there's sort of a veil over the eyes of the nations so that the gospel was restricted to Israel in the Middle East and that with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 
It's like the veil is torn away and those who lived in darkness now see a great light and they hear the gospel in their own language. So there is an increase of communication. There's an increase of the work of the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes and open their ears so that they actually can hear and see uh, the truth that God has for them. And so it's not a miracle of obscurity. It's a miracle of communication. It's It's a miracle of expansion of making things more clear, not making them less clear. Now, that may seem obvious if you are just looking at this passage for the first time. Uh, If you grew up in certain types of churches, uh, some people would interpret uh, the speaking in tongues as actually an obscure language that nobody can understand uh, and would say this is some kind of language of angels. Uh, And um, if you compare this passage to 1 Corinthians 14, very similar language, talking about people speaking in tongues. Uh, And essentially, up until around the year 1900, everybody in the church worldwide, everywhere, assumed that when the Bible in the New Testament talks about tongues, it's talking about foreign languages. Uh, That's literally what that word tongue means. It's just a, it's the Greek word for a language, uh, a foreign language. Uh, Now, as I said, I don't want to go into in huge detail uh, about this idea of sort of uh, the modern, many modern churches talking about speaking in tongues, but just sort of the history of it is that around the year 1900, there was something called the Azusa Street Revival, uh, and people started, um, as an outside observer, uh, would say they were babbling in languages that, uh, it, it, that didn't make any sense. Um, and uh, there's a whole theology attached with that. Uh, they would say they're actually speaking the languages of angels and so on. Uh, Q&A after the service, if you want to grill me more on this, uh, my views of this. Um, so uh, maybe you've grown up in a church where that was assumed and you're sort of surprised that I'm questioning that interpretation. Um, but I would say that whole approach actually comes in the context of a, of a view of the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, the general assumption uh, is that being in the spirit means being overcome by emotion. Uh, and so in some of the same churches which speak in tongues, you will also have more recently uh, roaring like a lion. Uh, they'll call this the Lion of Judah. You have laughing in the spirit, uh, laughing out loud in the church. Uh, older type Pentecostal churches, uh, there's being slain in the spirit where you fall over. I see some of you nodding up, yeah, I've been there, I've been at a church like that, um, where you actually, your body, you, not, you fall down on the ground uh, and start rolling around, uh, which is where the term holy rollers came from, if you have ever heard that term. Um, so without commenting on the validity of those things, I would say sort of the overriding assumption is that to be filled with the spirit means to be filled with emotion to the point that your brain is kind of disengaged and that you're sort of swept away by emotion. Uh, And so a lot of us, you know, if I was to make a poll maybe even in this room, uh, if I said, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? I I bet a significant number of us would assume, maybe haven't ever thought about it explicitly, that it means to be inflamed with emotion, uh, to be filled with all kinds of emotion. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Well, I'm not at all against emotion, but the Scripture doesn't talk that way. The Scripture doesn't talk about the filling of the Spirit being being filled with emotion. The thing that's going on in this passage here, I mean, look, he says they're not drunk, right? He says they're not drunk. 
What does it mean to be drunk, to be out of control, right? He's saying they're not drunk, they're in control, right? And they're speaking clearly to you, they're not drunk, right? So this is not an out of control, rolling around, roaring in emotion event. This is people speaking to people in the gospel uh, and it makes sense to people in their own language. Uh, and Calvin makes the point, he says, it would be very bizarre if the people speaking didn't know what they were saying. And he's saying, of course they knew what they were saying. They're speaking and it's coming out in a different language, but again, being miraculous, but the people hearing are hearing what is being directed to them. So they're hearing uh, the message. It's not being uh, made obscure. So scripture doesn't say or equate the work of the Holy Spirit with being overcome with emotion. Uh, that is just us sort of reading that in uh, to this. Now, I could give a whole extra sermon on the role of emotion. Uh, and I, I'm not at all against emotion. I think we could show a lot more as Presbyterians. <laughs> uh, but we don't make that equation of to show emotion is to be in the spirit. All right. Now, uh, having said all that, I want to move to the positive uh, Sometimes people say, well, Presbyterians, you know, we're, we're only two out of three of the Trinity, right? Like, we don't have the Spirit, you know, we just have the Father and the, and the Son, and we never talk about the Spirit. You have to go to, like, a Spirit-filled church to get the Spirit. Um, uh, not at all, okay? So what I want to basically take the rest of the, um, of the time to do is to present a positive agenda for what does it look like to be a Spirit-filled Presbyterian Reformed church, all right? Okay, so I'm going to advocate for you to be spirit-filled. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm saying it doesn't look like that, but I would say it's a tra tragic mistake if we think that we don't need to think about the Holy Spirit and to think that, well, one person of the Trinity can just be kind of ignored, right? That's not far be it from us to say the one whole person of the Trinity should just sort of not even be in our language, right? So uh, I want you all to go home feeling like I want to ask the Spirit to make me Spirit-filled, all right? Now, don't equate that to certain things, right? We don't necessarily want people rolling in the aisles, but um, it should be something that is an active thing that you say, I want to be Spirit-filled as, uh, uh, as a good Presbyterian, all right? <laughs> all right, so a little bit of this is actually stuff we talked about in Agora just a few weeks ago. We've been going through the, um, uh, the uh, theology of the Trinity so some of these will be very short points, uh, but just to sort of make sure we're all on the same page. So first of all, uh, the Holy Spirit is always a he. He is a person, right? So when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them are persons with personality, right? Very important because I can't tell you how many times I've heard people who have been Christians for 20 years who will talk about the Holy Spirit as an it, sort of like a fluid that's going to be poured into you, uh, or maybe like the force of Star Wars, you know, where it's just sort of like this current of water or something like that. Um, no, he is always in Scripture referred to as a he, i.e. he fellowships with the Father and the Son, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, and he has and is a, per he has a personality, he is a person, all right? One uh, kind of important thing uh, that that means is that he has a will of his own. And in uh, John chapter 3, Jesus says he does what he wants to do, all right? And you can't force him to do stuff by adopting a certain set of procedures uh, to sort of make the spirit flow, 
right? That he, it says the spirit does what he will. The wind, as the wind blows where it will, so the spirit does what he wants to do. He is a person with a will and you can't force him to do something by opening a valve, right? Uh, he is a person uh, with a will and we should interact with him that way. Uh, so we have to be very careful not to think that the Holy being filled with the spirit is like doing a certain type of rain dance to invoke him, to make him do stuff, right? Um, we pray to him and we ask him uh, to come into our lives that we don't manipulate him or control him. Uh, all right, so that's just sort of a straight point. Uh, there is, uh, to some degree, because he is a person, there is a sense that we do uh, when we ask him into our lives, uh, as we heard in the prayer of confession, by the way, you notice that assurance, it says, how much will the Holy Father, how much will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I ask you, have you ever asked him to fill with the Holy Spirit? Um, we talked about that a few weeks ago, actually. He loves to answer that prayer. Uh, but it is a little bit of a scary prayer because you're asking a person to come into your life and dwell in your heart and do stuff to you. Uh, and so there's, throughout Scripture, a lot of language of the Spirit changing our minds and changing our hearts so that we do things differently, we're convicted, uh, and so on. Um, so although we don't force him to do stuff, we can ask him to do stuff. Uh, and that's a little bit of a scary prospect. Uh, to ask a person to come dwell within us. All right, uh, second major just sort of theological point. Uh, all Christians, if they're Christians at all, uh, have the Holy Spirit in them. Uh, there's not like two classes of Christians, uh, spirit-filled Christians and Christians without the Holy Spirit. If you look in uh, the additional scriptures, uh, Romans chapter 8, uh, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, period, right? So... Conversely, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, right? And so part of that can, should be of, of a comfort. Uh, you shouldn't be wondering whether you have the Holy Spirit in your life. If you have asked him, he is happy to answer that prayer, and you can be go away tonight assured that if you want to be united to Christ through the Holy Spirit, he will answer that prayer. Uh, you don't have to wonder about it and say, well, am I Spirit-filled enough, uh, and so on. Uh, to be in Christ is to be united to him through the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is the agent of joining us to Christ, uh, and we can rest in that to know that if we're in Christ that we also have the Holy Spirit in us. Okay, so my last, I have uh, uh, just a few more points here that basically are all application, uh, but it really comes down to, all right, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is he doing if he's not whipping us up into emotional frenzy what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, and so I think I have four, four ways the Spirit works. Uh, the first is very clear all through Scripture that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, to love what is good and to hate what is evil. All right, that is uh, one of the A number one things. We saw that in the, um, the passage I quoted there from John. It says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, well, uh, it, it actually, in the passage of Acts chapter 2 that we didn't read, which we'll uh, presumably go to next week, uh, it ends with saying, and they were all cut to the heart. Right After Peter preached this sermon and this event happened, 
the immediate effect of the Holy Spirit was the people listening were cut to the heart and convicted of sin, right? Uh, and so one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is to open our eyes to our sin. And that's, uh, there's really kind of two sides to that. One is to drive us to the gospel. Uh, when you see your sin for what it really is, um, if you don't understand the gospel, it will drive you crazy, right? To hate sin, to have the Holy Spirit open your eyes up to hate sin, is to hate yourself when you see sin in yourself. And that leads to insanity if you don't understand the gospel, right? And so the gospel takes people who are miserable because they hate themselves because of the sin they see in themselves and says, you too can be saved. But if you don't see that your sin is awful, then you won't see the gospel as any value at all. You won't think you need to be saved from anything, right? It's when you come to that point of realizing what a wreck you are that the gospel makes sense and you say, I need forgiveness, I need salvation. So the first step of salvation is when the spirit makes you hate sin and uh, that leads immediately to hating what you see in yourself. And if you haven't come to Christ, that's a miserable place to be, right? It, the Holy Spirit's going to try to drive you uh, toward Christ because when you're miserable in your sin, the, the, the satisfaction for that is the death of Christ on the cross, right? And you start to see why all these hymn writers wrote about how amazing it is that Jesus died for us on the cross when you realize that your sin is so awful that you need to be forgiven, right? So the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to sin does work in us to open us to see the gospel, right? To see our need for it. Uh, the second side of that, though, is when we actually love what is good and hate what is evil, then it drives us to actual change. And so that's always coupled with this term of repentance in the Bible that we hate what we're doing, so we want to stop it, right? Uh, and so uh, he drives us to repentance. Now, in the Hebrews passage that we read earlier uh, in the call to confession, there was the language of the Holy Spirit writing the law on our hearts. Uh, and there's this whole transition in which we say we are no longer under Moses, uh, but we now live in the new covenant. And one of the distinctions of the new covenant is that we are not just going by the letter of the law, but we're going by the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. Right? Now, that's a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, it means, well, I don't have to be completely caught up in the details of the law of Moses uh, and trying to make myself into an Old Testament Jew. On the other hand, it means when the Spirit is prodding you that that's just not right, you need to listen, right? Uh, that you can't say, well, it's technically not forbidden by the law of Moses, so it must be okay. You know, when the Holy Spirit writes the law in your heart, it's not a lowering of the bar, it's a raising of the bar. It's saying, you can't just say, oh, because it's not in Moses, therefore I don't have to worry about it. You're saying, actually, hmm, you know, he's really convicting me. I really shouldn't do that, even if I can't find technically why it's wrong, right? And so we, uh, as we come to God, uh, we are open to the prodding of the Holy Spirit. So as why of application, then, let me say, to be Spirit-filled in regard to conviction of sin is in one sense to not run from that awareness of sin, but rather run to the cross. Instead of denying that we ever do anything wrong, 
to say, I'm convicted by my sin and be driven to the cross. But the other side is to listen to the Holy Spirit, not grieve the Spirit, uh, and let him convict you to change your ways and to do things differently, even when you can't find a technical reason to do it. Okay, uh, the next three are going to be a little quicker. Uh, this one is one that um, I would say, I, in studying this week, um, I found it's really throughout Scripture, but it's one that I don't find myself to be particularly an expert on. Um, the work of the Holy Spirit to comfort us. Right? The, the Scriptures talk in many places uh, about the work of the Holy Spirit to give us comfort. Uh, I'll just give you an example here from Romans 8. Uh, it says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. What spirit are we talking about? The Holy Spirit, uh, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, notice the himself, uh, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Uh, and so there's a number of places that I could uh, pick out, but we have multiple places where Jesus says one of the ways the Spirit works in your life is to comfort you, to, to assure you that you are loved. Uh, and maybe that doesn't sound too Presbyterian, right? So like that, you know, but it should be, right? So I, I will put it this way. You reform people and, and people who uh, don't even know what that word means, uh, it should be a routine experience for you to pray and feel close to God. It, sh it should be a normal part of your, your daily routine to pray and feel close to God and not just like a, a business letter that you type out to God, but you know, drawing near and feeling comforted and assured by the Spirit that you belong and are adopted. If that's not your normal experience, um, talk to somebody. Uh, uh, talk to somebody in the church and say, I want that, okay? That is not just for, you know, a certain type of, you know, fuzzy Christians, you know. That's a good reformed thing. You read the Puritans, right? It should be a normal, good reformed experience. Uh, and if some of you are not reformed, I just keep throwing this word out, reformed. That's in the name of our church. Um, it's a certain type of church, but if you don't know what that word means, don't worry about it. Um, but it often gets interpreted as sort of totally intellectual Christians. That's not, that's not what it's supposed to mean, right? You go back, read the Puritans. Uh, I'll say it again. And, and I have to say, I'm convicting myself in this as well. It should be a routine experience to pray and feel close to God for believers, right? That, that's the work of the Holy Spirit to comfort us. And when we pray, he prays along with us and gives us a sense of spirit of adoption. All right, another uh, work of the Holy Spirit is to give us wisdom. Uh, and again, I have a whole host of scriptures uh, that basically say that we should pray and ask the Spirit for wisdom in knowing the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, it's just not enough time to throw these all out there. Uh, but... I have to say, this convicts me again, because if you know me, you know I have a bias toward action. I just do stuff a lot. And then I'm like, afterwards, you know, maybe we should pray about that, right? Um, but I'm getting convicted that we should be, in advance, praying to the Spirit for wisdom 
before we rush out and act, right? Uh, and uh, so much of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 34 calls him the spirit of wisdom, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, is there to give us wisdom. And wisdom is different from knowledge. Wisdom is knowing what to do, right? Knowledge is just knowing, right? But wisdom is knowing what to do. And oftentimes we struggle with knowing what to do. And the Bible says God loves to uh, give us his spirit of wisdom. And finally, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit is to give us boldness. Um, I'll read, um, well, Romans 8 I already read. You did not receive a spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption. And then in 1 Timothy, um, I, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So it says God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So let me take the not out there and, and put it grammatically. God gave us the Holy Spirit of power and love and self-control, right? He's, so he's saying the spirit that you have, which is the Holy Spirit, is not a spirit of fear. He is a spirit of love and power and self-control. Um, and so... The Spirit drives us. Now, why is that connected? Because when we have faith in God, we say, what do I have to fear, right? As he brings us to really have faith in him, he brings us to rest in him and to be comfortable to say, I have nothing really to fear because even if I were to die, God would take me to heaven. Um, now, in Acts chapter 4, it talks about another experience of the Holy Spirit. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, right? So this is maybe the connection to irrationality. I started out talking about how many people associate the Holy Spirit with irrationality and just being overcome with emotion. Um, there's a funny phenomenon, which is that people who get literally drunk uh, often do things courageously they never would have done otherwise, right? And so there's a, a sort of standard story of people who dance on tables and give speeches and so on when they're drunk uh, that they never would have done if they weren't drunk, right? And then they've done studies where they actually gave people non-alcoholic drinks and told them it was alcohol, and they still did all the same stuff, right? Uh, because really the problem was their fear, Right of what people would think about them. Uh, and when they felt like, oh, now I don't have to be afraid, they actually were willing to do that. Now, it's interesting, in this passage, they say, we're not drunk. Why did people think they were drunk? Because they were so bold, right? Because they were bold in preaching to the public, uh, outspokenly. And we have an assumption that people only are that brave uh, if they're irrational, 